0: We're going to do a Bible reading this morning from the book of John in the New Testament. Uh, The sermon will be from this passage. So if you could turn your Bibles to the book of John, and we're going to be reading from John 19, starting at verse 38, and going through to John 20, uh, verse 18. Uh, So John 19, verse 38. Okay, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away the body. Nicodemus, Nicodemus also, who earlier came to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloth with the spices, as is a burial customs of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing that he was the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, "Raboni," which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I, have yet, yet, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he has said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Sam, if we haven't met. I'm one of the pastors here, so it's going to be my privilege to preach through that passage. But first, let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach these climactic events in the Bible, in the book of John, in in all the Bible, in all of human history, help us to see it, we pray. Just give us your spirit at work in our hearts, at work in me now to preach it, in our ears to all hear it and listen to it. These are wonderful things. And make them precious to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the context to our passage, to get the context, I think we have to go a ways back. Actually, all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. Let me read. Genesis 2.15 says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the story of human history begins in a garden. And it's a garden where there is no death. It's hard for us to even conceive of such a place. Although notice, there is the threat of death. there is the possibility. Of death. And it's almost like God in the garden, in the garden of Eden, lays before Adam and Eve the way of life and the way of death. The way of life is the tree of life. If they if they obeyed God, then they would receive that tree and get life eternal, immortality. But if they disobeyed and ate from that tree, then through sin would come death. And we know how the story goes, right? They they choose death, they choose sin. They choose, they want to be gods for themselves, and so they reap what they have sown. They are removed from the garden, and God says in Genesis three twenty two that they are removed lest He reach out His hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. The tree of life is not for them anymore, but instead it is declared, you are of dust, and to dust you shall return, and so it has been for every human since Death and dust, over and over. Like death kind of says to us, if you could personify death, yeah, you I mean, you could try what you like to avoid me, you know. You can put on your anti-aging creams, you can cover up the greys, you can exercise, eat healthy, of course you should do all those things. But what you are doing, let's be honest, we're prolonging the inevitable, right? The most inevitable thing in all the world is... It's death. It's We will return to dust. There was a series of terrible movies, I think it was in the 2000s, called Final Destination. I don't know if anyone knows these. It's just, I don't I didn't think I've ever watched any of them, but I was, they were popular enough and, um, and well-known enough that I kind of got the, the gist of it. And the Final Destination movies, which they made, I don't know, multiples of them, the basic idea was there were a bunch of young people and they were meant to die. And they didn't die. They somehow escaped death and so the rest of the movie is death kind of coming after them, right? And, and kind of knocking them off in creative ways um, as the movie goes on. And, 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 you know, they're just trying to escape death all the time. And so, you know, I, I just think to myself, this seems like a, a complete waste of time to me. Because in the ultimate, you know, big sense of things, okay, you might escape death for, like, these two hours. You're not actually going to escape death. Like, we all know that, right? Like, you got to the end of the movie, then maybe you didn't die. But we do know, right, he dies, Right, well, we all die, and that's how the story unfolds in the Bible. Like, it comes for everyone, right? Just after the curse comes in, in Genesis chapter 3, you have Genesis chapter 4, and what is it? It's a murder. Cain kills Abel. And then you have chapter 5, which may be one of the most harrowing chapters in all the Bible then we might we skip over it because it's a genealogy and so it doesn't have hold seems like seemingly a lot of interest for us but really it's not just a genealogy it's a list of people dying well then we read it read out some of it to you and you and you notice it Genesis 5 verse 4 begins like this When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived, after he fathered Kenan, 815 years, and had other sons and daughters. That's all the days of Enosh, were 905 years, and he died. And on, and on, and on it goes. And he died, and he died, and he died. Back to dust. Now, it's, it's striking because it's kind of redundant. say it over and over and over again. If you say, so-and-so lived for this many, you know, this many years, we can assume the rest, that it ended, right? They died. But yet, in every single phrase, death literally gets the last word, it is one word in the Hebrew, and He died. Just because I think it's not just a list of names, it's preaching to us, it's preaching to us the reality, the catastrophic reality of the curse. And he died, and he died. Do you hear it? And he died. And on, and on, and on it goes. John Piper once said, history is a conveyor belt of corpses. Although, if you know Genesis chapter 5, there's an exception, right? Enoch. Enoch, it says, out of nowhere, he didn't die. He was taken up to heaven without dying, didn't taste death. He didn't return to dust. Mitchell Chase writes this, he says... This rapturous report is a light of hope against the dark backdrop of the dead. If God could deliver someone before death, could He deliver someone after death? If the God of life could disrupt the rhythm of death that permeated the generations in Genesis 5, what else could He do? And so I think you walk away from the early chapters of Genesis with a couple of impressions um, at least. And that one of them is that death is very, very normal. right? It's just normal. It, it, it happens over and over and over again, and it seems inescapable, apart from this very rare exception. But so you also walk away with the, like, both the normalcy of death, but also a sense that this was not how it was meant to be. This is not there's something off about it. It's an intrusion. It wasn't the original design. And I think we we sense that, don't we? I I, I know I do. When I've been in funerals and and you have a sense, well, this happens a lot. Of course, this happens to everyone. So it's normal. But you do have a sense, this is wrong. Not wrong in just the sense that I don't like this. I wish this wasn't the case. Like, I'm uncomfortable with this. But wrong in the sense, it should not be like this. This seems off. And that brings us, I think, to the narrative in front of us this morning. We are in the aftermath now of another death, seemingly just another death in a series of deaths throughout history. We are now in the aftermath of Jesus' death. And if ever there was a death that felt wrong, like this is wrong, it had to have been that death. Pilate stated numerous times, this is an innocent man. I find no guilt in this man. People were longing for him to be the Messiah. And yet here here he is, we pick up the story, and Jesus' body is dead on the cross. So what next? Our passage begins with these words. Verse 38 says this, after these things. And I paused when I was just in preparation over those, probably for too long, over just those three words, after these things. And it just felt like great news to me just already, like gospel good news after these things. Is there an after these things? The people must have wondered, is there, going to, is there anything after this? Is there any hope beyond this? And some of us might have experienced loss like that, where you wonder, is there an after these things? Does, does anything go on after this? I've lost so much. Well, I think part of the good news of this story is already held in these three words. Because there's an after these things in this story, there is always an eternal, wonderful after these things for all of us. After these things, it says, Joseph of of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. So Joseph of Arimathea, he, he, he pops up at this moment in all four of the Gospels. We know a few things about him from the other Gospels. He was part of the Sanhedrin, so he was, he was one of the religious leaders. We know he was a wealthy man, that, and the other Gospels talk about, say that he was, he was seeking the kingdom of God. And John tells us that he was a disciple of Jesus, but he was a, a disciple in secret. He was a secret disciple of Jesus. And John actually told us about people like this in John chapter 12, back there, John 12, 42. He wrote this, nevertheless... Many, even of the authorities, believed in Him, Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For, here's the reason why, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. But things are changing for Joseph. I wonder, having witnessed what he's witnessed in the past day, And seeing what his peers like, screamed for, for this innocent man, Jesus, whom he was a disciple of, but in secret. And seeing what his peers, people he's afraid of, right? people he longs for their glory, he loves the glory of man more than the glory of God. After seeing all of this and the behavior of Jesus and the behavior of them, I wonder if finally he goes, you know what, the glory of God is better than the glory of man and he he separates himself from them, and he goes to care for the body of Jesus. Verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So Nicodemus, another religious leader, although we've met him before, haven't we? And John wants us to make sure we know it's not just another Nicodemus. you like, oh, another Nicodemus, that's nice. It's a great name. I'm sure it was very popular back then. No, it's like, that John's like, no, no, this is the... So, he earlier came to Jesus by night. Remember chapter 3? And notice he makes it clear he came by night. Remember night and light and dark throughout John are often symbolic, that he came to Jesus in ignorance, in darkness, in, in, he, d- he didn't understand things. And so Jesus has to tell you, you must be born again. It was very confusing to him. So he, he comes to Jesus in night, but when does he come now? In the light of day. I think it's different. And he comes to care, again, for the body of Jesus. So Joseph, it seems, took care of the, the legal matters, securing the body. And Nicodemus, another religious leader, takes care of the more ceremonial things to care both for the body of Jesus it's amazing the difference hey a body which throughout that day had been whipped flogged and now in its in his death now gets very careful care verse 40 so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews verse 41 Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a tomb, a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Where is Jesus buried? In a garden. Where was death first introduced into the world through sin? In a garden. You just wonder in the plan and the providence of God whether death itself might get defeated in the same kind of place that death entered the world through sin. Jesus is laid in a tomb in a garden. And we're told that the tomb was empty. I wonder why. Why does he make it clear no one, was else, no one else was in this tomb? Right? Sometimes you put your, your family would all go into the same tomb. Well, I think it's because if it so happens, no spoilers, but if it so happens that this tomb ends up empty again, well, there's only one body that's missing. It could be only one person. So chapter 20 begins, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, now you pause there and you go, wait a, minute. Wait a second, what day are we? It's Sunday. So we just skip Saturday. We totally skip Saturday. We went from Friday to Sunday, obviously not much happened. On Saturday, which actually I think is the point. Jesus laid buried in the tomb. Because Jesus didn't just die on the cross and then in the moment that He died, He kind of like came back alive again. Or He didn't, die, he didn't come back alive again after they took Him down from the the cross and, and as they were carrying Him, He came alive again. No, He waited until He was in a tomb. He was laid in a grave, and that becomes an essential part of the gospel proclamation. So when when the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 outlines to the Corinthian church the gospel in a succinct summary, he says this, "...for I delivered to you as of first importance." So this rises to the level, for the Apostle Paul, of first, ultimate, primary importance. This is what I passed on to you. "...that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried." That he was raised on the third day it includes he was buried the heidelberg catechism asks the question in question number 41 why was he buried answer his burial testifies that he really died he really died how do you know well because he went to the place where you only put dead people a grave a tomb right this is no kind of like I don't know if you've heard the swoon hypothesis, the swoon theory, and the idea is that Jesus didn't really die. Um, it's had popularity in different times, and it's, it's popular particularly in Islam, I think. Um, he didn't really die, he kind of like he swooned. He kind of came unconscious. But later on, he woke up, and, and he, was in the, his, he got, got, got out, of the, uh, out of the tomb, and so people just kind of, he just convinced everybody that he was resurrected, but he wasn't really resurrected. He just never actually died, really. I don't know. That seems hard, like maybe even harder to believe the resurrection. So what we're saying is, in the swoon theory, he, he, he survived, obviously, the crucifixion itself, the spear that was thrust into his side. He survived being taken down and wrapped up in cloth from head to toe, probably suffocated him. He survived being put into a tomb, bleeding without any medical care in a cave for a couple days. And then he managed to walk out of that and convince everybody that he didn't just recover, but he was resurrected with a new body. I mean, it's just, you know, I don't know, you know. um, Sometimes it feels like you, you read these critical type people, critical scholars and that kind of thing, and they come up with even greater miracles so that they don't have to believe in miracles. You know, it's like, really? that's Or he was buried... Because he died. And that's where you put dead people. So that was his Saturday. For the disciples, that Saturday must have been a day of waiting, searching, questions without answers. And like a silent, I don't know if you've experienced those kind of silent Saturdays, if you like, where you're just full of questions, full of wondering, full of searching and seeming silence from heaven for all the questions that you have. Well, that Saturday passed, just like all of our Saturdays will pass like that. So it says this, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. So this is the third person that we've been introduced in the story, and it's, of all people, it's Mary Magdalene. It's not long since she's been mentioned in the story. She was there in just the last chapter, in chapter 19, standing by the cross of the Lord Jesus with other women and John himself. And just that she is highlighted again in chapter 20 in the narrative, I think it's both, it's shocking and just very, very wonderful. It's shocking because for one, a woman in that day, her testimony was not admissible in court. It had, it had no weight to it. It wasn't worth anything in that day. Secondly, she's not just a woman. She was a sinful woman. Jesus had, rem- had had exercised seven demons from her. She's clearly extremely emotional in this story, and she's just highlighted, elevated, honored. One commentator writes this. It says, she was last at the cross and first at the grave she stayed longest there and was soonest here she could not rest until she was up to seek him she sought him while it was yet dark even before she had light to seek him by and light and dark and it says that you know she came and while it was still dark and remember light and dark are are metaphors often symbols in the in the bible and so she comes and it's 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 like before dawn right It's, it's it's still dark and she turns up but the darkness is like ignorance, isn't it? It's like she doesn't know. like She doesn't know what's happened yet. She doesn't get it. She actually won't get it for a little bit. But the beauty of dawn is that light conquers the dark. And there's hope. And that we will see that happen for Mary. So it says that, that, that Mary arrives and it says she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So it's dark, but, but she can see that. Verse two. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So that's her conclusion. She just goes straight to the conclusion and says, that's what's happened. People have taken our Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where, he's, where he is. We. So they did that, and we who love him, we don't know where he's laid. And who's she thinking of? She's, she's probably thinking of grave robbers. There were laws back in that day, so it was common enough that they had laws against grave robbing, and she's fearful that that's happened. Verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciple, thats which is John, and they were going toward the tomb, and the next bit, people have made a lot of jokes about, because it, it is kind of funny that they, just John felt like he had to include um, this next line, right? And I I don't judge him for it. I would probably do it too. But he says he won the race to the tomb. That's basically what he's saying. All right. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Right. That's excellent. Um, I don't know if Peter thought that that was a necessary detail to include. He's like, "How oh, many beat me. I hope no one knows. I hope no one finds out. John's like, everyone's going to find out. <laughs> Forever. You know." And I would just like to be the guy in heaven that goes, all right rematch. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's line it up and let's just see who can win in our heavenly bodies. And, you know, I might have a go too. So, verse 5. And stooping to look in, he, that is John, saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. So, from outside, he could stoop in and he can see enough and he can see two things. There's no body, but there is linen cloth. What does that rule out? It really rules out grave robbers, doesn't it? Would they undress the, the corpse before taking it? Would they leave behind expensive linen cloths and expensive spices? Unlikely. But while he's processing that, slowpoke Peter arrives. Verse 6, Then Peter came following him and went into the tomb. I love that. That's so. That's just so Peter. Like John, like, hmm... And Peter's like, get out of the way. I know you'll me. He's just, it's just straight in. And he saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Do you remember when, when, when Lazarus walked out of the tomb? Remember what, what he was wearing? Like he had his own kind of resurrection, but he comes out and he's just fully covered. Like he's wearing... All the his burial clothes, right? And Jesus has to say, "Okay, let's let's take those clothes off." Um, but I, I, I wonder if they kept them because the thing is, Lazarus will need them again. He's going to have to get back in those clothes. Jesus doesn't need those clothes anymore. He'll never need those clothes again. They're left behind in the tomb. And the picture of them laying there with the with the head um, wrapping over here is like it's like Jesus vanished. He just he disappeared amazing verse 8 then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead so john goes in and what you notice what it says he says he sees and he believes what does he believe he believes he's alive again. He believes that, but he's seen something and he believes it. But then notice it, it makes a point. He goes, be, the reason he needed to see it was because he didn't quite get it yet. Right? He didn't get the scriptures. He didn't get that the whole the Old Testament is full of illusions, like like the like, like what we read from Psalm sixteen that He will not let um, His body see corruption. That He will not leave us in Sheol, the place of the death of the dead. There's these hints throughout the Old Testament. right? It's part of Scriptures that Jesus would have to rise again. That's why Paul, say, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's describing the, the, the summary of the Gospel, what does he see? That he was raised according to the Scriptures. This was part of the plan. So right now, John just sees an empty tomb with burial clothes, and he goes, he must be alive. I don't know how else to explain this. This is, this is actually compelling today. You have to do something with the empty tomb. Everyone has to do something with the empty tomb. If you can see the empty tomb, you can, you can, you can see and as much as what John did and believe Jesus must be alive again. I went to a debate, I remember, um, in my early 20s. I was in Melbourne uh, between a Christian and an atheist, right? Just debating really the existence of God and what have you. Um, it was at a university, and at the time, I was, I was pretty confused by the tactics of the Christian. I was like, is this the best guy we had to do this? Because this doesn't seem right. It didn't help I recognized him from, he worked at the fruit shop nearby, and I was like, oh man, this is like an academic, that's the fruit shop guy. Um, but... In any case, (laughs) um, the the debate kind of kicked off and you had the atheist and he was bringing all these philosophical arguments and and tough questions at Christians and and, and all of these kinds of things and it was very academic and very sophisticated and then the Christian got up and he basically was like, what are you going to do with the empty tomb? I was like, are they talking, is this how it works? You know, is this compelling? He's talking academic philosophy and he's like, yeah, but what about... The resurrection. What about Jesus rising from the dead? How, what account do you have of the empty tomb, and the rise, and the, and the eyewitnesses, and the and the the rise of Christianity? It's, it's actually quite compelling, and a lot of people have become Christians because it's actually very hard to figure out what could have happened apart from a resurrection. You might say, well, the tomb wasn't empty, I don't believe it was. Well, then you have apostles preaching a resurrection and people believing it while the body's still in the tomb. It just would never get off the ground, there's just no way. And it's an amazing fact that belief in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus first exploded in the exact same place that Jesus was publicly executed, amazing. It's also amazing that the authorities who wanted to kind of put an end to this whole rising up and the, the preaching of the gospel and belief in Jesus, that they didn't question the emptiness of the tomb at all. They just kind of came up with a different reason for it being empty. The disciples stole the body. Okay, we'll test that. Do you think so? Do you think the disciples stole the body? You just have to ask. If they are deceiving everybody and lying, what do they get out of it? What's, what's, what's their gain? There's not a lot. They all die, bar one who gets sent off to Patmos. Pretty much, they're all martyrs. That's an amazing idea, that that they all made it up, deceived everybody, and not one person broke rank, and they all would die for it. That's an amazing thing to believe. They didn't gain any money from this. They didn't gain popularity. They didn't gain... They just suffered for it, believed it with all their hearts, and were willing to die for it. Now, I don't think these are a bunch of deceivers. If they did, well done. Right? They convinced a lot of people. And we have whole civilizations based on their made-up lie. Countries. It's amazing. Again, it's almost harder to believe... You know, you have to kind of believe in some different miracles to not believe in miracles, you know. Verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes, verse 11, but Mary, so Mary comes back, stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. J.C. Ryle writes this, he says, of all the accounts of the appearances of our Lord after he rose from the dead, none perhaps is so affecting and touching as this. He that can read this simple story without a deep interest must have a very cold and unfeeling heart. Mary stands outside the tomb just weeping, weeping, just overwhelmed with grief. I imagine like a heaving type, crying. She finally stoops to look in. Verse 12, it says, and she saw two angels in white sitting there, sitting where the the body of Jesus had lain, one at the the head and one at the feet. Robbers have not done this, Mary. These are angels. Verse 13, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Surely they know. It doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to kind of put things together. You're sitting inside a grave. If you saw someone crying at a cemetery later today, you wouldn't be like, I wonder what's going on for them in their life. You'd be like, hmm. No, it's obvious. So what, why are they asking? I think it's more to put the question inside of her to begin to think, need you be weeping? Maybe you actually don't need to be weeping at all, Mary. She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. So it's the same thing that she said to the disciples, except notice it's more personal this time. It's not just the Lord they've taken away. Who is it? It's my Lord. It's not we do not know where they have laid him this time, it's I don't know where they've laid him. But notice she's still just thinking in natural terms. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. It's common in resurrection appearances that Jesus is just not recognized straight away. So verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So Jesus goes a bit further than the the angels. He says, why are you weeping? But also, whom are you seeking? Of course, He knows. And just like the why are you weeping, I think, was meant to bring about the curiosity. do, Do I need to be weeping? So also the question, who are you seeking? Who are you seeking? Just think for a second, Mary, about who it is that you're looking for in this tomb. What is he like? Do you remember? Do you know him? you remember the things that you saw? I mean, he's the one that called Lazarus out of the grave. Who are you seeking? That guy. He's the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. You saw him. He he healed the sick. He walked on water. He calmed storms. Who are you seeking? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. Or come to me for living, living water. Who are you seeking? Think about it, Mary. He said, before Abraham was, I am. The irony is, of course, the one she is seeking is the one who is asking her who she is seeking. But she's still lost. It says, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. She's so determined, isn't she? She's so focused on this naturalistic Picture of what's happened, she's like, Sir, I, I just like she can't even think about the questions that they're asking. He's like, Listen, if there's been a mistake and you have been, you've taken this body, or someone told you to take this body, or whatever has happened, if you know anything about this, please tell me, I'll take care of the rest. Hoping that the gardener would be more useful than the angels, I guess. Verse 16: Jesus said to her. Mary. The gardener would not know her name. And I'm sure no one said her name the way Jesus said her name, hey? So there's nothing more needed he needed to say, just to say, Mary. John 10 verse 3, the good shepherd calls his own sheep by name and Jesus and leads them out it says they know his voice he called her by name and she turned and said to him in Aramaic rabbi <laughs> you know, which means teacher you just imagine the the look because so obviously she wasn't facing him because she turns and just the look on her face mary the, and just rabbit eye. Oh. <laughs> it was just like, jumped. You know, it says soon, Jesus like, don't cling to me. It's like, whew. Makes sense though, hey. Charles Spurgeon writes this, he says, in thinking over this subject, I've come to the conclusion that Mary Magdalene was selected to see Christ first because she loved him most. John loved Jesus much, but Mary loved him more. John looked into the empty sepulchre and then went away home. But Mary stood there and wept until her risen Lord appeared to her. He concludes, You see then that there is much sweetness, far more than I can tell you in the thought that Mary Magdalene was the first person who was chosen to see the Lord Jesus Christ after His resurrection. It is amazing. He could have gone to anyone. He could have chosen anyone. Who will be the first person to see the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Who's it going to be? He could have turned up to Pilate. That would have freaked him out, wouldn't it? Hey, Or hey? well, the Jewish leaders and gone. He could have gone to just the apostles. Who does he go to? Mary. Mary Magdalene. It's just full of wonder. Wonderful. Everything about God and everything about the gospel is it's just kind of, it's in that. Like it doesn't work, right? As far as um, a, a credible testimony to the resurrection, resurrection appearance. But why does he go there then? It's, it's, it's just the priorities of God. It's the it's the work of the gospel. He goes to the person who's most sad, the most broken, the most needing of a resurrection appearance. He goes to Mary because God exalts the humble. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. It might sound abrupt, right? But I don't think it, I think it's full of comfort. Mary has thrown herself, You can just thrown herself at, on Jesus, maybe, just, maybe around his, his legs, just holding on and, and thinking to herself, I will never, ever let go of Jesus, right? I, I must have him physically with me. There's, the only way that I can be okay from now on is if I'm holding on to Jesus, if, if I never actually ever let him go. And Jesus says, do not cling. You do not need to cling to me. I'm not ascending right now. But right now, there is a job to do. Jesus says, But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. What a message to go and tell the fellow disciples. Not just that he's alive. But that he's ascending now that's very very good news at least to any of the disciples who remember anything that jesus said on the night that he was to be betrayed that chapters 13 to through to 17 in the upper room where jesus tells them that is it's good for you that i go away it's good for you that i ascend back to the father things like in my father's house are many rooms and i'm going to prepare a place for you right? he's ascending to the father I will not leave you as orphans, but the Father will actually send the Holy Spirit and this is better. Greater works you will do because I'm going back to the Father, Jesus says. You should rejoice, Jesus says, that I'm going back to the Father. It's good news. Go and tell them, Mary, I'm going back. The other part of the message is how much grace is being given to these disciples. Now just remember what's happened since Jesus was last with the disciples. They haven't fared well. In Jesus' deepest, darkest hour of need, what did they do? They abandoned him. They fled. One of them left in the upper room to go and betray him. Another denied knowing him three times and the rest just abandoned. And in the, in the upper room, do you remember what Jesus called them? He says, I call you my friends. Friends? Have they acted like friends? Friends? So how will Jesus relate to them? What will he call them on the other side of the cross and the resurrection and on the other side of their complete failure? Jesus says, go and tell my brothers. He just draws even nearer to the failures. Amazing. You would think maybe after all of this It would go from friend to maybe like servant. It would be distance. Jesus goes closer. Again, Spurgeon writes this, but we see that the blacker was their sin, the stronger was his love. The more defiled they were, the more sweetly did he talk to them. And how does Jesus describe to them where he is going? He doesn't just say, I'm going to the Father, going to God, what does he say? I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. I'm sending to my God and your God. They are included, included into the communion, into the fellowship of the triune God. This is a climax, I think, of a theme in John's Gospel. Jesus has spoken over and over and over again about His relationship to the Father. And this is the first time that He says to them, and He's your Father too. J.C. Ryle writes this um, to those reading his commentary. He says, Let us leave this passage with the comfortable reflection that Jesus Christ never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As he dealt with his erring disciples in the morning of his resurrection, so will he deal with all who believe and love him until he comes again. When we wander out of the way, he will bring us back. When we fall, he will raise us again. But he will never break his royal word. Him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And what, and, and that he had said these things to her. So that's the passage. Let me just say a couple of things in closing and then we're done. But it'd be almost enough to just walk away and just, just with these words ringing in your mind, he's alive, he's alive. Jesus is alive. He is alive. Just register that in your mind, in your heart, afresh, He's alive. That changes everything. Death, which has reigned in the world since Genesis chapter 3 through Genesis chapter 5, and on and on and on, and here we are. From that garden at the start to now this garden in the middle to actually another garden at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, this is the very last book, no, sorry, the very last, well, it's the last book of the Bible, and it's the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, and what does it describe? Another garden. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, What? They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. We get back to the garden. We get back to the tree of life. We get life forever. Seeing the face of Jesus. Clinging to Him. And that way it was made possible because He died for our sins and he took the punishment for sin on himself, and he went into the tomb and defeated death and rose again. I wanted to ask you, how are you going this morning? Not just, don't just say, yeah, I'm good. How are you going? How are you doing? Many of us know all kinds of pain. In light of this passage, Here's the question I want to ask from the passage. Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Does the resurrection hope of eternal life change things? Does it? That this place is not my home? That he's preparing a place for me and I will be with him forever? That the best is yet to come? that the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing to the glories that are in store for us who are in Christ, that day is coming and, and is coming soon where there will be no more death, no more pain, no more suffering, and you will inherit heaven and all the blessings therein forever and ever and ever. Jesus has ascended to His Father and your Father, to His God and your God, So why are you weeping? I love what Sam Storms writes this. He says, I can honestly say that I've staked my life on an empty tomb. Everything I am, everything I own, everything I've done or hope to do hangs suspended on whether or not Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. The decision I made decades ago to put my trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is only as good as the tomb is empty If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, my life is a sham. I've invested everything in, staked everything on, entrusted everything to the historical fact of the empty tomb of Jesus. If his body and bones are still buried somewhere in Palestine or have long since disintegrated under the force of time and the laws of physics, nothing has meaning for me, nor do I have meaning for anything or anyone else." live in light of the resurrection that is alive. Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning and you've come on in and I don't know what you're expecting, but here it is anyway. I'm going to ask you a question. Who are you looking for? So, it's a, it's a question from the passage. Who are you looking for? A lot of people come to church because they are looking for Jesus. Like, if He is there, I, would, I want to know. Like like Mary, kind of looking. Is he in the tomb? If he is there, I want to know. Like you come to church, like, I would like to know if he if he's there. Maybe you've looked all kinds of other places throughout your life, wondering: Is there kind of hope here? Is there meaning here? Is there true joy? Is there kind of satisfaction for the soul here? I have bought a bunch of stuff. I have earned a good living. I have made something of myself in my career. I have I have partied hard. I have tried this. I've tried that. I've tried that. And here you are this morning, wondering. Is Jesus to be found? Well, I trust by through the preaching of his word and, and the, the things you've heard this morning and the and the gospel message that that perhaps you would hear Jesus call your name. You hear him, and maybe you have a sense that he's saying your name. Every Christian here, hey, we we all have a Mary type moment where we go, yeah, he called my name. Right? And then that's what. Jesus was saying, the good shepherd knows us, and he calls his sheep by name. So he says, Glenda, you know. He says, Noah. It's Bryce, and he called you by name, Miranda. He called you by name. It's just the most wonderful thing. And you heard it, and you turned around. He probably didn't say Rabbi but you probably said, Lord, Saviour eternal joy, eternal forgiveness of all my sin because that's another reason people might turn up to church is you are racked with guilt. That's the fundamental thing that Jesus came to fi- f- fix, to give to you the offer of forgiveness of all your sins and life now and life forevermore. He's calling names still so throw yourself on his mercy. Let me pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, pray that these wonderful, too hard to even describe how wonderful they are things would get implanted in our hearts and we would live lives in the light that you are alive. And you've called us by name. And we love you because you first loved us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.